I'd like to talk to you tonight about how to live a life with no regrets. Sarah was rich. She had inherited $20 million dollars. Plus, she had an additional income of $1,000 a day. Now, that's a lot of money in any time, but it was immense in the late 1800s. Sarah was well-known. She was the belle of New Haven, Connecticut. No social event was complete without her presence. No one hosted a party without inviting her. Sarah was powerful. Her name and her money would open almost any door in America. Colleges wanted her donations, politicians clamored for her support, organizations sought her endorsement. Sarah was rich, she was well-known, she was powerful and miserable. Her only daughter had died at five weeks of age and then her husband had passed away and she was left alone with her name and her money, her memories and her guilt. It was, in fact, her guilt that caused her to move west. It was her passion for penance that drove her to San Jose, California, where her yesterdays imprisoned her todays, and she yearned for freedom. She bought an eight-room farmhouse, plus 160 adjoining acres, and then she hired 16 carpenters and put them to work. And for the next 38 years... Craftsmen labored every day, 24 hours a day, to build her a mansion. Observers were intrigued by the project. Sarah's instructions were more than eccentric. They were eerie. The design had a macabre touch. For example, each window was to have 13 panes. Each wall was to have 13 panels. Each closet, 13 hooks and each chandelier 13 globes. The floor plan was goalish. Corridors snaked randomly, some leading nowhere. One door opened to a blank wall, another to a 50-foot drop. One set of stairs led to a ceiling that had no door. There were trap doors and secret passageways and tunnels. This was no retirement home for Sarah's future. No, this was a castle for her past. The making of this mysterious mansion only ended when Sarah died. The completed estate sprawled over, are you ready, six acres. It had six kitchens, 13 bathrooms, 40 stairways, 47 fireplaces, 52 skylights, 467 doors, 10,000 windows, 160 rooms, and a bell tower. Why would Sarah want such a castle? I mean, didn't she, didn't she live alone? Well, sort of. Those acquainted with her story might answer. There were the visitors. And visitors came each night. Legend has it that every evening at midnight, a servant would pass through the secret labyrinth that led to the bell tower, and there he would ring the bell to summon the spirits. Sarah would then enter what she called the Blue Room, which was a room reserved for her and her nocturnal guests, and together they would linger until 2 a.m. when the bell would be rung again. Sarah would return to her quarters, and the ghosts would return to their graves. Who comprised this legion of phantoms? Indians and soldiers killed on the U.S. frontier. You see, 
They had all been killed by bullets from the most popular rifle in America at the time, the Winchester. And what had brought millions of dollars to Sarah Winchester had brought death to them. And so she spent the remaining years of her life in a castle of regret, providing a home for the dead. You can see this poltergeist palace in San Jose. You can tour its halls even today and see its remains, but to see what unresolved guilt does to a human being, you don't have to go to the Winchester mansion. No, lives imprisoned by yesterday's guilt are in your own city. Hearts haunted by failure are in your own neighborhood. People plagued by pitfalls are just down the street or just down the hall or maybe in the next pew. There is, wrote the Apostle Paul, a worldly sorrow that brings death. There is a guilt that kills, a sorrow that is fatal, a venomous regret that's deadly. I wonder how many Sarah Winchesters do you know? I mean, how far do you have to go to find a soul haunted by ghosts from the past? Maybe not too far. Maybe Sarah's story is your story. What do you see when you look back on your life? I suppose none of us can be ultimately free from regrettable memories. All of us have regrets. But I believe the Bible teaches us that there are ways that we can live our life without regret. I want to live my life in such a way so that as the songwriter said, when it comes my time to die, I'll have nothing to prove and nothing to lose and nothing to hide. A life without regret. The Bible commands us or commends to us dozens, maybe hundreds of ways in which to live a life without regret, but the three I will mention to you tonight are the big ones. If you get these three, all of the rest will fall somewhere underneath these ways to live a life without regret. Number one, if you want to live a life without regret, meet God early. Meet God early. Listen to the preacher in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 1 as he says, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. And then Solomon takes the next five verses and describes in poetic and metaphorical language that sometimes is hard for us English readers to understand the breakdown of the human body. He speaks of arms that begin to tremble as they age and legs that bow and teeth that fall out and being hard of hearing and the unsteadiness that comes with all of that Solomon describes, he's describing the breakdown of the human body as it ages. And evidently, Solomon is describing the life of someone who did not meet God early. Because listen to the epitaph in verse 8 of Ecclesiastes 12. Over this life, Solomon says, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I asked a little boy, what does that word vanity mean? And he correctly said pride, but that's not what it means here. Here it means a waste. It means pointless. It means hopeless. Solomon is saying that this person, be it a man or a woman, has lived a life of wastedness, of, of futile pointlessness. This life has been useless. It's been of vanity. Why? Because they did not meet God early. 
I'll never forget Walt. He was uh, in my church that I pastored right out of Bible college in Franklin, Ohio. He rarely came to church. He was, you know, an Easter and Christmas attendee. And occasionally for revival, he would show up. His wife was a regular attendee, and she was professing to be a Christian. But Walt was a bitter old man and rebellious against the Lord. And he was also dying. His doctor had told him he didn't have long to live, congestive heart failure. One Sunday morning, we were in revival, and Walt came sitting uh, sitting on the, the back seat in the middle section. That church had three sections, a middle section, two side sections. And he was sitting on the aisle of the middle section as you're looking out of the congregation on the right. I was up here uh, listening. I don't remember who was there preaching. I don't remember what he said. I just remember there was a good spirit of conviction during the altar service. And I'm not given to this sort of thing, but I sensed in my spirit that I needed to go back and talk to Walt. And so I slipped down the side aisle and walked in behind him. His head was bowed, his eyes were closed, and the evangelist was giving the altar call, and I put my hand on his shoulder. And when I did, his eyes opened, but his head didn't raise, and so he just looked at the pew in front of him, and I said, Walt, wouldn't you like to go and pray this morning with me? He shook his head no. Stood there for a moment, not knowing for sure how to proceed or what I should say, and finally I said, Walt, you and I both know This may be the last time you have opportunity to seek the Lord in a service like this with the Holy Spirit so obviously at work. And I'll never forget, as long as I live, he looked up at me with steely gray eyes, not one hint of emotion, and said, Preacher, that's a chance I'll have to take. I walked back to my seat. We ended the service. Walt walked out of church that morning, never to return, and a few weeks later crossed the line of worlds as far as I know, never having made his peace with the Lord. Can you imagine the regret just five seconds on the other side of your death? Can you imagine the terrible, awful, horrific regret that Walt must have faced in that moment when he realized that he traded his own life for a pile of ashes that now on the other side of eternity there is nothing but heartache and punishment and and, and, uh, terrifying circumstances. What What a life of regret. You might be here tonight and say, well, what about me? I'm... I'm not, a young, I'm not a teenager, I'm not a young adult, I'm maybe middle-aged or older, and, and, and I didn't meet God early, what about me? Well, go back to that very first verse of, Rome, of uh, Ecclesiastes 12.1. Those first four words, remember now thy creator. The Bible says today is the day and now is the time. As long as there is breath in your body, there is hope. And the, the Lord stands with his arms open wide to you tonight. And you can write where you are by faith. Receive Jesus Christ into your heart and life. I ran across the Chinese proverb. It's been a few years ago now. It was new to me. Maybe you've heard it all your life. But it just simply said this. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is now. And so I'll agree with you. The best time to have gotten saved was... 20 years ago or whenever in your life, but the second best time is now. 
right now. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Don't hold off. I've heard young people say, and maybe you have too, I, I, I know this is the right way. And, and I know I, I want to be saved. I don't want to go to hell. I, I, I know mom and dad are right. I know the church is right. But I want to do some things. So I'm going to go out into the world and experience the pleasure I want to experience and, and I have some ambitions and I want to do all that first and then after I'm done with that, then I'll come back and I'll get saved. But the hard, cold truth is rarely, if ever, does that happen. And I'll tell you why. Because when you say that, I'm going to come back and get saved later, you don't understand the nature of sin. Because sin deadens spiritual desire. And any flicker of desire you have right now to get saved, any flicker or flame of desire to do the right thing right now, when you give yourself over to sin, sin kills spiritual desire. And it may just be a week, it may be a month or a year, but you'll wake up one morning and not have even the remotest desire to live for Jesus or to go to church or to be saved. Sin deadens spiritual desire. Not only that, you need to know this, that sin not only deadens spiritual desire, but sin deceives us into believing that we're all right. You can know right now that not all is well between your soul and the Savior. You can have clarity in your conscience. You know you're not living right. You know that sin separates from God. You know that if you were to die tonight, you'd go to a devil's hell. You know those things, but you just give yourself over to sin, and it won't be very long until you're thinking, you know, I'm not as bad as, as they are. I'm not as bad as that other person. In fact, I've, in comparison to most people, I live a pretty good life. And before long, you begin to listen to the lies of Satan that tell you that you really don't need Jesus, you really don't need a Savior, you're really okay. What's happening? Sin deceives you. Until not only do you no, no longer have a desire for the Lord, you don't even think you need the Lord now because you're okay as you are. Another thing that you don't understand, if you're in fact contemplating coming back after you've done your own thing, you don't understand that sin debilitates, it imprisons, it enslaves, it imprisons, it addicts. You may think you're going to go choose this pleasure, and maybe for the first few times you are choosing to do that thing. Maybe for the first few times you, you are choosing in your own volition to go and partake in that pleasure, but it's not very far down that road until you wake up one day and realize it is that pleasure that has you in its grip and you can't break free. And no longer is it a pleasure. Now it is a chain around your neck. And although you want to be free, and although you would love to be free, you know that it's impossible. You are enslaved by sin. And so before you walk out of the church tonight or before you leave camp meeting, before this week is out and say, I'm going to get saved, I'm going to do the right thing, I just want to do my own thing, just remember this, when you do that and give yourself over to sin, sin deadens spiritual desire, it deceives you into believing you're all right when you're not, and it debilitates you, it enslaves you, it weakens you, it imprisons you. I don't know how many... I'm 52 years old. I don't know how many. I've been in church all of my life. I've been in churches all over the world. I'm so grateful to God. He's given me a, a ministry. He's allowed me to go to five different continents and different countries on all those continents. I've been in churches all over the world and all over these United States. I don't know how many testimonies I've heard. I read on your website. because I didn't know who you were, really. So I figured I'd go online and try to figure out who you were. 
And I loved it, what I read. And one of the things I read was something about testimonies in service. Yeah. I don't know how many testimonies I've heard, but thousands, right? You've probably heard thousands. If you've been here in church all your life, thousands of testimonies. You know, I've never heard one Christian ever stand and say, my only regret is that I didn't stay out in sin a little longer. My only regret is that I didn't squeeze the pleasure of sin out in my life. No, no, no. Oh, but ladies and gentlemen, I have heard many times with tears, Christians stand and say, my only regret is that I didn't meet Jesus sooner. My only regret is that I waited so long to come to Jesus. And I tell you, if you want to live a life without regret, meet God early. And if you haven't met Him early, meet Him now. You'll have to forgive, this is just a plain Jane outline, but I'm just going to give it to you. This is what I felt like the Lord had for tonight. Not only live a life without regret by meeting God early, but you want to live a life without regret, play by the rules. We know this is true in our daily life. How many of you, besides me, have had that sinking regret when you look in your rearview mirror and see flashing blue and red lights? Right? Oh, what regret. What do we regret when we have that experience? Well, we regret that we didn't see maybe the speed limit sign, but probably if we're going to be honest, we regret we didn't see him before he saw us. Right? (laughs) Regret. Why do we have regret in that moment? Because we didn't play by the rules. And so life teaches us this. I mean, the Bible teaches us this, but just living life teaches us this, that if you want to live a life without regret, play by the rules. But maybe I should say it like this. If you want to live a life without regret, play by the rule. Matthew 7, 12, spoken from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, do unto others as you would have others to do unto you. Now, this is not a... This is not a reactive teaching, you understand. Jesus isn't saying, wait to see how people treat you and then, and then you treat them accordingly. No, this is proactive. In fact, if we were busy doing all the proactive positive commands, we wouldn't have time to get involved in all the negative, you know, thou shalt nots. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? He didn't go back to a thou shalt not. The greatest command Jesus said was, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. And what we call the golden rule is another positive command. Do unto others. Get busy doing unto others what you want them to do to you. The Great Commission is another positive command. We call it the Great Commission. It's one of the great ones. It's a great command. Go. Jesus didn't tell his disciples, go and do your best not to do anything bad. Go and... Preach the gospel and make disciples and baptize in the name of the triune God. You want to live a life without regret? Play by the rule. This probably doesn't happen here. But uh, sometimes where I come from, people get preconceived ideas of other people they haven't even met. Right? You know, in a church this size, I don't know, maybe it's possible for someone that sits over here to not even really meet someone that sits over here. For the, you know, if someone new comes in. And, and, and I know it doesn't happen here, but where I come from, people sometimes will just look at another person and say, well, they just, they just think they are so, they must think they're God's gift to, you know, look at the way she wears her hair, look at how he walks. And, and all of a sudden, we don't even know them. 
And let me, let me stop here long. I'm, I'm in the brush, but I'm, I'm in the brush on purpose. You know how easily you can destroy someone's character and reputation? You know, you don't even have to say anything about another person. Their name can just come up and you can go, and all of a sudden you've planted a doubt in that person's mind about the character of that other person. But let's just suppose that you know this particular day you're going to have to interact with this person that you've never interacted with before and you think they're whatever you think they are. How do you go into that day, into that meeting with them or that time? With, do you go in saying, you know, I'm just going just to wait and see how they act towards me and then I'll decide. Or do we go into that meeting saying, Lord, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to treat them with love and kindness and respect regardless. How, that's what the, really that's, that rule is all about, do unto others. Right. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament? He had a coat of many colors that his dad gave to him, and that was one of many problems. You know, his older brothers hated him, and they hated him in part because he was daddy's favorite. Yep. And he gave Joseph a coat, but the Bible doesn't say he gave any other of his sons a coat. And I don't know, I believe Joseph was a godly teenager, a godly young man, but he probably wasn't very wise. And this, okay, I'm just telling you right now, this is, this is me reading between the lines. All right, so I just want to get this, not in scripture, but I kind of think that maybe Joseph wore that coat as often as he could. Yeah. Just kind of swagger around in front of his brothers. Yeah. And, he, and, you know, he, I think he was a good guy. I think he was a good young man, but maybe not very smart because one day eating, they were eating their Cheerios at the breakfast table one morning. And Joseph says to his brothers, guys, you'll never believe this dream I had last night. No, 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 Joseph. Yeah, I, I dreamed I was the king. I was sitting on a throne and all of you were bowing down to me. Isn't that a great dream? Well, he wasn't very bright. It wasn't a very smart thing to do. And one day, Jacob told Joseph, go check on your brothers. They're shepherding out in Shechem, or I'm not sure, I forget. Anyway, they're out there. Go check on them. And what does Joseph do? He's an obedient son. He's doing to his dad what he would want his son to do to him if the situation were reversed. So he goes in obedience to his dad to check on his brothers. And they see him coming, his brothers do from afar. And you know, you know the story. This is an Old Testament story. It's familiar. They throw him in a pit, the pit of family jealousy. And they're going to kill him. And Reuben comes to his rescue and says, no, 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 we can't do that. And they sell him into slavery. All Joseph was doing, right, all he was doing was playing by the rule. They got thrown into the pit. He gets sold into Egyptian slavery. He's sold to Potiphar's household, the captain of the guard. And he rises to prominence there. He's a great employee. He is serving faithfully his employer like he would want his employee to serve him if he were the employer, right? He's, he's doing unto others what he would want others to do to him. He's playing by the rule. And everybody loves Joseph, including Potiphar's wife, right? And day after day, the Bible says... She tries to seduce him. And one day she catches him alone in the house. And Joseph does, does what every single, I'll just talk to you men tonight for a minute, what every single man ought to do when faced with sexual temptation. He didn't try to witness to her. 
He didn't try to be a big brother to her. He ran, which is what you should do. If it's a flesh and blood temptation, run. If it's a temptation on your computer screen, run. Don't get into a rationalization process with the enemy. Well, I, I can probably handle this, or I, I can probably peek at that, or I can probably do this, go you know, this far. Oh, no, no, that's a, that's a dead-end street. Just run. That's what Joseph did. But when he ran, she got hold of his outer garment, the Bible says. And when Potiphar came home, big crocodile tears came down her face. And she said, you brought this Hebrew into our house to mock me. Look what he tried to do to me. And he's thrown into the prison of false accusation. Have you ever been there? People say things about you that aren't true. Man, I've been there and that hurts. In the heat of the battle... You want to get on Facebook or social media and say, what they're saying is not true. You know that's not smart. You can't do that. So what do you do? You live in the prison of false accusation. And you live it down. Which is what Joseph did. He went to the prison and what did he do? He became a model prisoner. So much so that he became second in command to the warden. He was the kind of prisoner that he would have wanted to be if he was the warden. What's Joseph doing his whole life? He's done nothing but play by the rule, and he gets thrown into the pit. He gets thrown into prison just because he's doing the right thing. One day, I know it sounds like a fairy tale, but one day the baker and the butler get thrown into prison. (laughs) And they have dreams, and Joseph does for them what he would have wanted them to do for him. Playing by the rule, he interprets the dreams. There, he's a gift from the Lord to do that. And before the butler goes back to the palace, all Joseph says is, please remember me to Pharaoh. But does the butler do that? No. He promptly leaves and forgets that Joseph ever existed. Joseph's played by the rule all of his life, and it seems like things are getting worse. But one day, the dreams come, and Pharaoh summons after the butler remembers, and the rest is history. And listen, we look back, Joseph looks back on his life with his brothers, who now eventually did end up bowing to him as his dreams prophesied. And he looks back on his life with his brothers, and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I think I can hear the echo in those words of Joseph saying, I have no regrets. I have no regrets that I played by the rule. Yes, it was tough. And yes, I suffered consequences. And it wasn't always easy. And I didn't always feel like doing the right thing. But I have no regrets. I'm so glad God taught me this lesson early in my life. Because, could I just be honest with you tonight? I got one shot at you. And so if you don't want me to come back, that's fine. But I was just going to confess to you here tonight. If I had to feel saved to be saved I wouldn't be saved sometimes I'll go a step further if I had to feel like reading my Bible and praying to read my Bible and pray I wouldn't always read my Bible and pray if I had to feel like coming to camp meeting sometimes to always come to camp meeting. I wouldn't come to camp meeting sometimes because my feelings don't always cooperate. But I'm convinced that we do what we want to do. Yes. Amen. You say, no, 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 wait, 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 just a minute. I took out the trash last night and I didn't want to do that. Uh-huh. Well, no, you did. You wanted to. You didn't feel like it. I mean, you didn't come to that overflowing 
trash can that was filling your kitchen with that beautiful aroma, you know, of whatever's in there. You didn't come to that trash can going, oh, this is fun. Kids, get in here. We're going to take out the trash. Oh, I love this time of the week. I mean, I hope you didn't do that. We're all worried about you if you did. Now, you don't, you didn't, listen, you didn't feel like taking out the trash, but you wanted to take it out more than you wanted to leave it in your kitchen and sneak up the place. So you did what you wanted to do. The same is true about spiritual things. Someone said, well, I didn't, I, I didn't want to fast, but I did. No, no, you didn't feel like fasting. But you wanted to draw closer to the Lord. You wanted some mountains to move. You wanted to humble yourself. So you didn't, no one comes to the time of fasting saying, oh, this is going to be so, I just love, you know, denying myself. I love how, you know, you get kind of nauseated when you haven't eaten all day. And, oh, that's just, no, of course not. But listen to me, the Bible doesn't say anything about feelings having anything to do with our choice through the power of the Holy Spirit to do the right thing. So sometimes we just, the life of holiness is just putting one foot in front of the next and doing the right thing whether you feel like it or not. Just getting up and living your life, being pleasing to the Lord whether you feel like it or not. Feelings come and go, but through the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, you can live a life that pleases God. I'm glad the Lord taught me this at an early age. I, I got saved in college. Okay, so I, I was raised in an awesome home. My mom and dad were and are the real deal. They practiced what they preached. They were, they're godly examples. But I didn't get saved until I was 20 years old at Bible college. And the Lord taught me so many things in those first few months, first year or so. And he taught me this. I, I had an early morning theology class. And early morning and theology doesn't always, you know, go hand in hand, especially for a 20-year-old kid. And we had a very strict, austere theology professor at GBS. And uh, the first class, he was going over the syllabus with us, you know. And uh, he said, now you're going to get, I'm going to grade you largely on class participation. Saying... I'm going to be watching to see if you laugh at my jokes even, you know. Well, we didn't have to worry about that. I don't think he ever told a joke that whole semester. But that's what he, you know, he was, he was really wanting us to participate. But here's what he was after. So it was an hour and 20-minute class, and he wanted us to pray. We were all preacher boys. And he wanted us to pray before we started studying theology. Well, he said, well, that's common, right? I mean, you're in Bible college. You pray before every class. Yeah, but... This class was different. He wanted us to pray for 20 minutes before we started studying theology. And not only did he want us to pray for 20 minutes, he wanted us to pray on our knees for 20 minutes. And not only did he want us to pray for 20 minutes on our knees, he wanted us to pray out loud on our knees for 20 minutes. Ah. And I came into theology class one morning just a little bit late, I honestly don't know why I was late, but it's quite possible I had overslept. All I know is I didn't feel like being in theology class, and I for sure didn't feel like praying out loud. <laughs> Been raised in church. And so I did, stood right at my desk, and I did what I had seen countless preachers do in my dad's church growing up. You know, they're in the congregation, and I did what I call the holiness moan. I've seen them do it my whole life. Here's, here's what it looks like and sounds like. Oh, you know, they're praying. He's, oh, oh, oh. 
And I don't know what the bouncing on the toes does. That adds a little spirituality to it, I think, if you bounce on your toes, you know. No. So I was bouncing and groaning. I just thought, well, you know, they don't feel like praying, but they don't want to leave the, whoever's leading in prayer out to dry, so they're going to bounce and groan. Oh, you know. So I'm bouncing and groaning at my desk. I'll never forget it. As long as I live, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, not in an audible voice, but it might as well have been. And he said four words, give me your voice. And I knew exactly what he meant. And I wish I could tell you that in that moment that the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, pray out loud, in essence, that in that exact same moment, he changed my desires and my feelings. And all of a sudden now I felt like, but I didn't, I still didn't feel like praying out loud. Nothing changed in my emotions, but I knew God was speaking to me. I knew I had to obey. So what did I do? I cleared my throat, and even though I didn't feel like praying, I raised my voice to the general volume level of the crowd because they were already in there, you know, praying, and I started to pray. And could I tell you that in about 30 seconds, the Holy Spirit dumped a bucket of honey in my soul, and He blessed me, and I began to weep with joy at the sense of God's presence. So glad God... Now, I wish I could tell you that every time you do the right thing, whether you feel like it or not, God's going to dump a bucket of honey in you. He's not going to. But let me tell you something. What will happen is if you commit by the grace of God and the power and the enablement of the Holy Spirit to do the right thing, whether you feel like it or not, you will build a platform in your life upon which God can work. One of these days, he will show up big time to answer prayer and work a miracle, and it will be in part because you played by the rule. You did the right thing whether you felt like it or not. You want to live a life without regret? Play by the rule. Whether you feel like it or not. And lastly, you want to live a life without regret? Meet God early. Play by the rule. And then give God all you got. Just give God everything. Just let Him have it all. The most miserable people in church, at least when I was pastoring, didn't seem to be even the out-and-out sinners that came every Sunday morning. It was the church folks that were trying to live one foot in the world and one foot in the church. They were the most miserable ones. And if they just give God everything, in fact, I saw it happen many times when they finally got to that place of full surrender and they just gave God everything. Whoa, what, what an awesome change. You want to live a life without regret, give God all you have. And there's countless examples in Scripture. We don't have time to go through all of them tonight, but I think of Abraham. God gave him Isaac, the promised child. And I don't know about you, but I think I know our children are everything to us. I mean, you can mess with me, but you mess with one of my kids, right? And if something happens to my kids, you know, they're grown and graduated and gone. I told you that we were, we got home from, where were we? Jamestown, Tennessee on Saturday. Weirdest camp, I mean, an awesome camp, but the timing was so weird. We started on a Sunday night and went through a Saturday morning. That was their camp. So I preached Saturday morning. We drove back to Cincinnati, went to our home church Sunday morning, and found ourselves in the ER with our youngest son, Logan. He had been at church camp playing softball, and he was pitching, and a softball came, a line drive hit him in the shin, and his leg had swollen up, and it was red, and it looked really, really bad. So we ended up in the ER with our 23-year-old son. He's six foot three, and he's a, he's a, you know, he's a full-grown man. But man, mom and dad, we were, he was hurting, and we were concerned. But Isaac was more than just Abraham's boy. He was the promised child. And one day, God calls to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. 
on Mount Moriah. And you know the amazing thing about this story? Moses doesn't record any real conversation between Abraham and God. God says, go, and the next thing we see, the next scene, Abraham and Isaac are trudging up the mountain. Abraham's not saying a word. Isaac's got a few questions. Uh, Dad, uh, you know, we got the fire and we've got the wood, but uh, where's the lamb, you know? And don't you love what Abraham says? God will provide a lamb. Straps his son to that altar on the top of Mount Moriah, and right before he plunges that knife into his son's warm, vibrant body, the angel of the Lord reaches out and says, Now I know. Now I know that you trust me, that you're walked perfect before me. And all of a sudden, Abraham hears something rustling in the bushes behind him, and there's a ram caught in the thicket, and God has provided a lamb. You know, the Bible doesn't say, but unless I miss my guess, Abraham kind of skipped down the mountain that day saying, I have no regrets that I gave God everything. I have no regrets that I just surrendered God my everything, my all. And like I said, we could, we could talk about Paul. We could talk about, oh, so many examples of people who gave God everything. But let me just tell you about a New Testament character that we often don't think of as giving God everything because of who he was, and that's Jesus. But listen to him pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to him pray on the eve of his crucifixion. And he says to the Father, Father, if it's possible, let this cup, right? Let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will. There were two wills in the garden that night. Jesus said, not as I will, but Father, as you will. And that surrender, that giving the Father everything literally meant the life of Jesus dying for the sins of the world the following day. But do you know what the writer of Hebrews says? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about Jesus having joy on the cross? The writer of Hebrews says that while he is enduring, enduring the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him, on the cross, Jesus is looking ahead into eternity where he will be reunited with his heavenly Father in the glory they shared before time began. He's looking ahead into the future when the multiplied millions of people will be gathered around the throne singing praises to the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And for that joy that he had on the cross, he endured the shame. And, and as he says it is finished, I hear the echo of these words, I have no regrets that I gave the Father everything. I started this sermon telling you about a rich old lady. Let me finish by telling you about a rich young man, William Borden, heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, graduated from the uh, Chicago High School, a millionaire. His parents, I guess for a senior trip, gave him a trip around the world. I went to Gatlinburg. <laughs> I thought I was, you know, in heaven, now wow. Borden goes around the world. And while he's traveling the world, the Lord gives him a burden for the world's hurting people. He writes back to his mom and dad in a letter, I've decided to give my life to the Lord for missionary service. And when he made, wrote that letter and made that decision, in the back of his Bible, he wrote the words, no reserves. 
came back home. He graduated from Yale University. He turned down high-paying job offers because he's going to be a missionary. And when he turned down those high-paying job offers, underneath the words, no reserves in the back of his Bible, he wrote the words, no retreats. He sailed to China to work with Muslims, but he stopped first in Egypt for some more preparation. And within 30 days of landing in Egypt, he died from cerebral meningitis. A waste, you say. A waste. No, not according to William Borden. Because underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he had written the words, you guessed it, no regrets. Because Borden had figured out that even if it means the cost of your very life, there's only one way to live a life without regret, and that's to give God everything. Give God everything. Oh, oh, the peace, the joy, the satisfaction of just knowing your all is on the altar. Amanda Smith, I'll close with this. Amanda Smith was a poor black washerwoman living 125, 50 years ago now. She got saved in a little Methodist church. She was poor. All she did was wash other people's clothes for a living. Hardly had a dime to her name. She went to the Methodist church and she loved the Lord. And one day the preacher spoke about putting your all on the altar. He kept saying that in his sermon. He'd preach a while and then he'd say, you got to put your all on the altar. And when it came time to give the invitation, he said, would anyone like to come forward and put your all on the altar? Well, Amanda was a Christian. She wanted all that God had for her. So if I need to put my all on the altar, well, then I'm going to come. And she came, and as good Methodists do, they were probably, you know, pounding her on the back with a Bible. And, and, and they were saying this. They were saying, Amanda, put your all on the altar. Put your all on the altar. She was praying good when all of a sudden she stopped praying and stood up and walked out the doors of the church. Everyone was disappointed and shocked because, I mean, it was a good prayer meeting up front. But she just lived down the block, and when she came back in, she walked down the middle aisle with her wash tub and everything she owned in it, a dress, a pair of shoes, a bar of soap, not much else. She walked down the middle aisle of that Methodist church, came to the altar and put that big tub up on the altar, and then she climbed up on the altar and inside the tub. And then she looked to heaven and she said, Lord, here I am, tub and all. And I tell you, when you get to that point, that's when you're going to experience a life without regret. When just everything's on the altar, fully surrendered, just give God all you have. You want to live a life without regret? Meet God early. If you haven't met him early, meet him now. Play by the rule and give God all you have. Let's stand together tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We're thankful for the gospel. We're grateful, Lord, that you have given us a way to live a life without regret. And I pray, Lord, today that as we leave this place, you would renew within us a desire and a determination to live this kind of a life. If there's someone here that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that even before this service is out, they would come to a saving knowledge of your name, your grace. I pray if there's a Christian here that still is kind of toying with uh, holding on to some things, I pray that tonight would be the night that they let go and let God have his way. I pray, Lord Jesus, you would just be glorified in the remaining part of this service. We thank you for your love and your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.